Wrapping up today's series, dealing with your stuff. We've already looked at dealing with sin, guilt, and shame. Dealing with your your false, your incomplete images of God. Dealing with your own broken image of you. With fear, with grief in the last two weeks, and today, dealing with, in some ways, the hardest of all. With pain and suffering. Cynthia mentioned in prayer, as we appropriately prayed for the sadness going on in a little town called Uvalde, Texas. I've never heard of that town until this week. Probably the same with most of us. It's a small town. If you were to take the population of Stroudsburg and East Stroudsburg and make it one town, that's about the size of this town in Texas approximately 15,000 people coming together in yet another very sad and tragic moment in our country where we're suffering, great, deep, horrible suffering has been inflicted from the will of a very sick person. And sick people shouldn't get to have guns. And we've got a problem in our nation with this. And the problem is now that if we refuse to admit that we have a problem, and if we do the same thing we've done over the last many of these kind of tragedies, nothing's going to change. And it's going to happen again. And I won't pretend to have the answer. I won't pretend that one political party has a better idea than the other. What I am saying is, in this and many other issues, but this should be right near the top of the list, we've got to find a way to come together and solve problems again. Or the problems will continue. And the sadness that happened in Texas is, and those mothers and fathers and friends and grandparents are experiencing today is no less than the tragedy of any other gun death in the country that's happened this week in many, many places. Whether it's one person or children in a classroom, it shouldn't happen, and we can do better, and I pray that we'll do better, and I pray that we'll find a way. We're not going to completely end the suffering, but it doesn't have to be this bad. It doesn't have to be this big. It doesn't have to be this often. That's my prayer. Today we're talking about suffering. and All of us understand what that word means in very personal ways. And the variety of, of suffering is as varied and varietied as all of our lives. For there are many ways in which suffering comes upon us. So the, the question before us today is, how do we deal with suffering? The way you deal with your pain either reveals your relationship with God or exposes what your true God is. In the example I just used, this and please hear this clearly, with some people, what has become their God is the gun. That doesn't mean if you're a gun owner, I think you worship your gun. No, I don't. 
Does, does that mean I think the Second Amendment should be done away with in our nation? No, I don't. But anything that takes the place of God in our lives, that we turn to first before we turn to God, is an idol and needs to be rejected as such. And so whether it be a gun that has replaced God, whether it be politics itself that has replaced God, whether it's your own selfish pride that has replaced God in dealing with suffering, if, if we're turning to anything other than or less than God, that thing is an idol to us, and that thing is insufficient to help you through your suffering the way only God can be there with you and help you in your suffering. Our moments of suffering should be when people literally see Jesus in us. See Jesus coming through our words. See Jesus coming through our actions. Uh, can, Jesus reflected in our very, our very attitude, our very demeanor about the pain that we are experiencing. To be real with the pain. To cry when it hurts. To be honest about it. To, to, to be angry and express anger in an appropriate way in the pain. But always come back to the one who's with us in that and that's the emphasis of today's pain. When, when, when trouble comes, we know that, that God feels far away. I'm going to give you an example of one of the many psalms where David is, is crying out to God. You familiar with David and, and some of the things David experienced in his life? David was a very passionate man, a, a, a very he, he's, he's the kind of guy that a lot of guys don't like because he... He was athletic and good-looking and had money and had power and had the girls. And he just had everything, David, I'll tell you. And, and on top of all that, actually, underneath all of that, thankfully, was a man whose heart was after God. But sometimes that heart drifted off in, in different ways. And sometimes things happened to him that he didn't deserve. And he was running for his life from a guy named Saul. He was running for his life from his own son named Absalom. Those are just two examples of, of times that David was wondering where God was. What's happening? And he says in the first verse, the 10th Psalm, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like, where are you now, God? Why in this moment, when this pain, this, this suffering, the ugliness of this is just... Right here in front of me. Where are you? What's going on? That's a good prayer. That's an honest prayer. You don't have to wait around until, until the anger subsides or, or until the passion is, is you know, put into, into more appropriate words that we usually think of when we think of prayer. No, this is an honest prayer. God can take it. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. When, you, when, you, when you're mad at God, tell him so. When you're wondering where he is, tell him so. Because what you'll find is, as happens in this psalm, as with many other psalms, when you, by the time you get to the end of the psalm, you hear this. But God, you God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. 
The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So he begins with this expression of of suffering and pain. Why, God? Where are you? What's happening? And as he expresses that and the other words of his prayer, he gets to this place where he's thankful that God is there with him in the trouble. God does not promise you that trouble will never happen. God does not promise you that pain and suffering will not come to you ever in this world. That is, that is not part of the reality of this world. We live in a broken world. And yet God has promised he is with us in it. And that's what we can count on 100%. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for good times and protection and and help. And certainly God does send that in, in, in certain times according to His plan and will. Those parents have sent their kids off to school in Texas on Tuesday, Monday, whatever day that was. I, I wonder how many of them prayed for the kids before they went out. Where are you now, God? See, this is where we got to be really careful with the name it, claim it idea of taking scriptures to talk about God's protection and think, well, if I quote that verse and I prayed passionately enough, I'm safe. Nothing's going to happen to me because God promised it. It is a tendency. The more we pay attention to God, the better things tend to go. The more we apply his principles to our lives, the better life tends to go. But you don't have a guarantee that these things can't and won't happen to you. What you do have the guarantee of is that God is with you in the trial, in the struggle, in the suffering, because he understands. Do you see that important difference there? It's not enough to seek God when we struggle. We need to find God in and through the struggle. So in other words, don't just look for, for, for where God is to, to God, God, help me here. Oh, good, you're here. Now you fix this. Oh, God, you're here now. Now change it. Some things can't be changed. But what can be changed is the attitude that can come to our heart when we realize that as hard as this moment is, as deep as the pain is, as long as it's gone on perhaps, to know that you're not alone in it, that's the promise from God. Jacob, in the book of Genesis If you ever to do a study of the book of Genesis, do you know half of those 50 chapters is about Jacob? Directly or indirectly? I mean, Genesis, wow, you've got got creation and Adam and Eve and and, and the fall of mankind and Noah and the flood. You've got the Tower of Babel. You've got um, Abraham being called, waiting for a son. You've got it. That son coming named Isaac. You have Isaac who has twins named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, incredibly blessed with with 12 sons. That story of Jacob takes up half this book of Genesis. I think there's a good reason for that. And I think the heart of the reason comes 
in the 32nd chapter when Jacob, whose twin brother Esau, threatened to kill him when he stole his father Isaac's blessing. And that threat to kill him never went away as far as Jacob knew. 20 years after that threat, 20 years after he ran off and, you know, eventually he met Rachel and Leah and that whole story with two wives and concubines and all these kids came to him. He's blessed, he's blessed, he's blessed. Even when he screwed up, he was blessed. Even when he was deceptive, he was blessed. That's how much God was with him. But now the deception is catching up with him because he has to face his brother Esau. And all he hears about from his brother Esau is that there's 400 soldiers with his brother and they're coming to get him. And he doesn't have an army. He's got sons and some of them are old enough to have their kids. He's got their flocks and herds, their riches, their women, but they, they don't have an army. And Esau's coming and he's mad. He divides up all his goods, hoping that at least half of them survive. And he goes off by himself to pray. And in the middle of the night, God shows up, manifesting himself in the form of a person. And he goes into a wrestling match with God. Wrestling with God because of his fear of what might happen. Wrestling with God because he doesn't want to suffer. Because he doesn't want those he loves to suffer. Because he is really afraid. You ever been wrestling with God in prayer? Because something is coming and and you feel like you can't stop it. That's a good definition of, of suffering, by the way. Whenever you're out of control. There's a circumstance before you or someone you love and care about deeply. And you can't change it. They've been diagnosed with a disease and you can't stop it. And the doctors have done everything they can. Your your child makes bad decisions and you can't make them for him or her. And you want them to take a better direction. You've lost your job and you can't get a better one or a good one. Et cetera, et cetera. Anything where, where you can't stop it, control it, change it, fix it of your own power. It's a pretty good definition of suffering, isn't it? Here's Jacob. He always had an idea. He always had, had some deceptive thing or some idea. Sometimes he even turned to faith and trusted God. And, but now he's out of ideas and he's wrestling with God. And then they wrestled a long time. It's kind of a strange and unique story in Scripture. But here's what it says then in the 28th verse at the end of this wrestling match. Now what Jacob wanted was God's blessing. I'm not going to let you leave until you bless me, God. This prayer's not over. This wrestling match isn't over until I am blessed. Now, fast forward, God did indeed bless him with safety the next day. His brother didn't greet him with a sword. His brother greeted him with a hug. And they were okay. And everybody was safe. But God gave him something else. God speaking here. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans, and have overcome. And maybe it's footnoted in your Bible, it isn't many. Israel means he struggles with God. This is the first time that word is used. That name was given. Now, do you think that's by accident? Was this, this prayer was about more than protecting Jacob and his family from what he thought would be vengeance from his own brother. 
This prayer was to give Jacob, his sons, and his people, which would become a nation, an identity. And that identity literally means to struggle with God. Now, doesn't that tell you something? If you know anything about your Old Testament from there forward, what's going on in Israel? Happiness and good times, prosperity and peace, nonstop. (laughs) Once in a while it was there. There were good times and they celebrated when it happened, but that was the exception. There was struggle. There was was struggle militarily with neighboring nations. There, there, There was struggle with the people turning away from God, worshiping idols and other things. There was struggle with kings that led them there. There was struggle to to obey the law of Moses that God gave them. It was a struggle to follow God. Are you with me? Is it still a struggle to follow God? Yes. I mean, do you you think this, this way of life we've embraced in following Jesus, if indeed that's where you are, would would you call it easy? Would you call it good? Would you, would you call it... Time, would you, would you, have you seen times of joy? Have you seen times of, of, of good and, and, and happiness and, and peace in your heart? Yes, yes, and yes. But none of that came easily, did it? It was a struggle. Because this is how it started. And when you go to, to Ephesians, just so you think that wasn't just the, for the name... Of, of that nation Israel to struggle with God. Well, we are rooted in that same faith through Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, chapter 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that's us unless you're Jewish, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So read that another way that definition of Israel, heirs together with the struggle with God. Members together of one body shared together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, in Christ, he has overcome the struggle in the sense of sin has been conquered, death has been conquered. We praise him for that. We believe in faith and we know that. But we're here in this world, and so struggle is still part of life. Pain, suffering, troubles are still part of our lives. And just knowing that is is very helpful when the next one comes. Jesus himself said, and you know I said this many times, those of you heard me more than a few times, In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We're breathing the air of this planet. We're standing on the dirt and the dust of this this rock called earth. And while we're here, trouble is part of our existence. And it's a struggle to follow God, and yet it's a struggle that in Christ, in faith, we succeed at. Through Him, we do succeed at. But that, 
to, to, to view our, our struggles and our pain through that lens is helpful. And, and it's helpful because there's a prophet named Isaiah who kind of foresaw what we needed as people. Through the Spirit, Isaiah knew that the kind of Messiah the world needs is one who would enter into our suffering. So that back to that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, if you were read down the whole chapter, you're going to see these words, some of them more than once. And this is about Jesus. If you're not familiar with this part of Scripture, okay, the book of Isaiah, part of the Old Testament, was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. So, and when you get to the close of the, the Old Testament, not all the books are in here chronologically, but somewhat, and Malachi was the last prophet. And so from Malachi to Matthew was 400 years. There was no other scriptures written, at least not that were accepted as part of what we call the scriptural canon today. All that to say, it was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus when Isaiah wrote this. Now he's writing it in the past tense. But inspired by the Spirit, he says these things about Jesus, the Christ. That he would be despised, rejected, he was a man familiar with suffering, pain, he's stricken, he's afflicted, he's pierced, he's crushed, he has wounds, he's oppressed. Can any of those words describe parts of your life, maybe even where you're at right now in some form or another? Yes. And that's the good news. Because when we pray, we're not praying to a God who doesn't get it. Oh, Lord, please help me. I mean, what do you know? You don't know what it's like out here. You're sitting up there in heaven. It's nice and, you know, pristine and pretty and painless. But, you know, I'm down here. I'm hurting. And then God said, wait, I I sent my son. And he gets it. He became one of you. He was like you in every way except sin, but he felt sin. That is the effect of sin. Do you think when Jesus was a little boy, he ever got excluded from playing with some other little boys? Yeah, probably. I don't know that for sure. Doesn't We don't have any direct stories about in Scripture. But when it says he was human in every way, well, that means the, the, the common experiences that we have as people in this world, he had them. Most of them. In other words, he understood rejection. And and all this long before he went to the cross, long before he even said his first, did his first miracle, gathered the disciples, all of that, he understood this, and that was going to get even harder and harder. So when you pray, you do have a Savior who understands being rejected and afflicted and oppressed, and suffering, and really, really hurting. Now in this chapter, I just want to highlight a couple of the, of the verses. The third verse says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Familiar with pain. Again, he gets it. He, he under, understands us. Um, and the, the rejection just wasn't in that moment. 
at the cross. It was all humanity, in a sense, rejected Jesus. All people are responsible for taking this innocent man, this man filled with love and compassion, who made all the right choices, who said the right things, who resisted the evil. He did all of that persistently and consistently, and that put him on the cross. If you're familiar with the name, a a philosopher named Plato, even he understood that. Now, I'm not suggesting that Plato was inspired by the Spirit or was given some vision by God. He just understood people. And hundreds of years before Jesus was born is when Plato was alive, and, and he would do these um, little arguments. That's, that's the way you would write philosophy. You, you, you kind of have an argument with yourself, and you write it out, and you put names to it. Well, one side says this, the other side says that, and you sort of work through all these philosophical positions. All right. So, so this one particular argument that he was writing about was about what would happen if a perfect person actually emerged in the world. And and they were filled with compassion. They did things right. Well, the world would reject them so much to the point where they accuse them of being the opposite. And in the end, they would beat them, arrest them, and crucify them. Plato said that. Now, again, he's not inspired by the Spirit, but he understands people because this is what people do. People hurt people. People do really stupid, ugly, horrible things like walking into an elementary school with a gun. Where'd that come from? It came from the evil hearts of mankind. And that's what brings suffering, and Jesus knew all about that. And he understood it. Surely he took up our pain and, and, and bore our suffering took it upon himself. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And and one of the things, too, that we need to be reminded of is is when Paul says in Galatians uh, 2, uh, 2.20, I think, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. So what that tells me is, I'm not just glad that Jesus died for my sin. I'm I'm not just glad that he took my suffering, he took my place and went to the cross. I am, okay? But God's intent wasn't that I stand back and say, yay, Jesus, thank you, I love you. Even if I really passionately mean that. He invited me up there with him. Because, Paul Miller, there's things that you have to crucify in your life. There's things that you have to die to. There's things that you have to set aside. And you know what? It's going to hurt. And some of the struggles that we need to go through in our lives are exactly that. We need to go through them. We need to let go of our false identities. We need to let go of the things that we know hurt us, but we keep going back to them. And that hurts. That's hard. That's a struggle. So the struggle with God isn't just the the unfair things that happen to us and the sin of the world that's been dumped upon us, whether we can blame ourselves or someone else. The struggle is also to recognize that I have to make some hard choices about me and trust God to help me, and he will not only help you, he is with you because he dies with you. 
you die with him. And you rise to life with him. And it's not just the, the resurrection you'll experience when you leave this world and come back to life. It's also the resurrections you can, when, when you realize you have left, a, left, let go of the things that hurt you. When you've let go of that habit, that, that, that sin, that, that thing that has plagued you and you've moved on and you just feel like you're a new person and you praise God. And that's a taste of the eternal resurrection. This is what it's like this is what it means to be healed by his wounds. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I've heard that verse and often would think of Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin when he's being accused and not saying a word in defense until they asked him if you are indeed the Son of God. And he said, yes. But everything else, they made up flat-out lies about it, but he didn't say a word. And, and so, so I think, wow, Jesus, that is really, that's amazing of you. That, that's, that's incredible that you have that kind of you know, strength and restraint to, to not say those things back to them. Wow. And that's true, but it's more than that. Can you find one example in the Gospels of a complaint from Jesus. A complaint. He did get frustrated with the disciples from time to time. <laughs> okay, but that's, that's kind of not quite the category of complaint. Before he went to the cross, he's praying in Gethsemane. And he says... Lord, this is, this, is, this is really hard. This is more than hard. This is the worst thing anyone ever had to face as a human being. And if there's another way, if, it is if this cup can be taken, please take it, but not my will, but yours. But, but that's not really a complaint either. It's just an acknowledgement of, of the difficulty that we can't even fathom how deep that was. Jesus didn't complain. All those words I put up on the board a moment ago about Isaiah wrote way ahead of time were true of him. Rejected and afflicted and put down and crushed and wounded, etc., etc., etc. And he doesn't complain. Wow. How does he do that? Well, guess who's in you? Guess who's with you? Guess who went with you in the suffering? Guess who went with you in the, in, in the dying that you have to do to you? Guess who's still there, has never left you? And guess who can emerge in you to help you not to complain when that's the first urge that you want to do? Do complaints make it better? No. We've all heard hundreds of ideas and some of the usual ones about how to stop these horrible shootings in our country. But complaining itself doesn't change it. Maybe some of those ideas are good and can work, but if we can't sit down and at least talk about it, then it's not going to get better. But Jesus was silent in terms of not complaining about what he had to do, and that's the key. Jesus always knew his identity. Jesus always knew his purpose. And he always knew it was going to be filled with suffering and pain, but saw the purpose in it, motivated by love 
for us. When you're motivated by love, you can overcome a lot. In fact, you can overcome anything. Do you believe that? Is the love of God more powerful than your pain? More powerful than your suffering? More powerful than the injustice? More powerful than the sickness? More powerful than all of the fears that you that surround the troubles that, that come to us. That's the love of God. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's you and me. He, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It, he, he's, again, with us in this. The way you deal with your pain either reveals your relationship with God or exposes what your true God is. Great suffering and pain requires an even greater love. Say those three words with me. God is love. Lord God, may that truth override our fears. May that truth override our worries. May that truth help us right here, right now, in whatever form of pain and suffering we are dealing with. May the love of God surround us. We ask this in your name to help us to know that you're there beside us and you've never left and you never will. Thank you for that love. May we find our true identity in you and in that loving relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.